0: Prep your Bibles as I have a word of prayer here in a few moments, but Acts chapter number 20 and then Titus chapter number one. We've been dealing with leadership off and on. We've had two lessons on leadership tonight. This will be lesson number three. We'll talk about ministers and ministry and we'll have a word of prayer. Father, again, it is our privilege to be able to open the bread of life and minister the word of God. For a few moments now, we need your help. We thank you that you gave your son to die on the cross for us. We're grateful that he was raised from the dead for our justification. We want to remember those families connected with all the decedents. These past few days, the difficulties taking place, the one survivor who's wrestling with his own forms of guilt, We pray by the power of your Holy Spirit. You'll minister to all of them in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. We talked about the role of the deacon, and we showed you from Romans 16 that in the Greek we had a woman who was a deacon. And we looked at what Paul said about that office and some of the qualifications. We also talked about. Handling false doctrine that comes into the church. We looked at the appointment of the seven, of which Stephen and Philip were appointed and themselves became evangelists in the preaching of the gospel so that the apostles could continue their ministry in prayer and in the word. Now I want us to look at some of these elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 17. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. When they were come to him, he said, you know, from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I had been with you at all seasons. Now, Paul is talking about his example and his lifestyle. These scriptures in this particular portion coming down to verse 28, he's explaining to them that he set a good example for them. He hasn't chased after anybody silver or gold He's tried to put an example in front of them that would lead them to be good leaders in that church at Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a big city, so I'm sure there were lots of believers. And it's likely that numbers of elders were required for that. But the ministry was still different. Let's not forget that in the day of Pentecost, several thousand people became Christian. About chapter 4 and 5, at least 5,000 men were Christian. So you had a big church, but you still only had 12 apostles, and then they appointed seven other people. You might think that's not enough, but that's what they felt was appropriate at that time. The church here in Ephesus, I don't know what the number of believers might have been, and it doesn't tell us how many elders he had appointed here, but he does tell us about himself. Paul said in verse 25, he was testifying to the Jews and Greeks. He tells us that in verse 24, he basically put the gospel before his own life. His life was in jeopardy many times. He tells us in verse 27, he did not fail to declare unto them all the counsel of God. And that's where in verse 28, he says to them, look over the flock because I'm leaving and grievous wolves are going to enter in among you. Paul is saying my absence is going to produce an opportunity for people to come in and bring false doctrine. He's saying they wouldn't do that if I was here because his presence was one that was strong. His teaching produced sound word and sound doctrine, but his departure would open it up for all kinds of teachers to come along. Now, why would that happen? Because in every church you have babes in Christ, you have people that are carnal, you have some that know the word better than others know the word. And the elders were appointed to be able to ensure that when false doctrine came within that area, they would be able to handle it knowing what Paul taught them to do. So training is essential. And the number one way that Paul trained the people was by teaching them the word of God and by the example he set with his life. If you look at chapter 20, verse number four, you can see the members of Paul's team. You can see that it was international. Ministry teams and leadership tend to look like the kinds of people that are involved in that area. When you have Ministry teams that are very diverse and people of different ethnic groups is usually because in the vicinity of that parish, you have people of different backgrounds. When you have a, a uh, leadership team that typically exemplifies one particular ethnic group, it's usually because that's the majority ethnic group in that area. Now, it also can mean that sometimes you have one group that doesn't trust another group. Because I've been overseas and watched where missionary organizations were all controlled by Americans, and they ensured that the people who were of that particular country didn't have any strong leadership roles. So sometimes that can be a matter of mistrust, but I still think that is a bad procedure. You can see here, Paul had people from Thessalonia, from Berea. I'm reading verse four. He had people that were from Asia. So it was entirely international. Some of these were of Jewish background. Many of them were Gentiles. Now, if we go over to Titus chapter one now. Want to work on. This and take a little time for this. We learned in chapter 20, although I did not read the verse. That Paul went from house to house teaching the people in the early foundational years of the church, Christians met in homes. That's important to know, because when you're reading this, it's easy to take our 21st century ideas of church leadership and denominationalism, and then superimpose that upon the book of Acts and begin to believe that because our denomination says they go back to the book of Acts, that that's exactly how it or arose. That's, that's not entirely true. Denominationalism didn't start until the third century. At no time when you read the book of Acts or the epistles of Paul, can you come to the understanding that there was one person in charge of all of the Christians on planet Earth or around the Mediterranean? At no time do you find that the churches in all these different places had to give a portion of their offerings to a headquarters in any particular place. There's no time do you find that preachers had to wear particular vestments and robes and garments. There's no stories at all in the Bible about people lighting candles or burning incense in order to produce holiness or something like that amongst the people or to create a, an atmosphere of holiness. And even communion was something that was not taken in, in, in a specific A beautiful building that had stained glass windows that had been built for that. They broke bread from house to house as families and everybody could take communion and it didn't have to just be a preacher's hand touching it in order for it to be made holy. So when you understand that and you look into the scriptures, you you can you can see then why Paul makes some of the statements that he makes. So going from house to house, that's how they originally started. That, in fact, that's how I started here in Nebraska. Our first meetings in Red Cloud. We were going from house to house for about six months or so before we finally found a, another location. So let's, let's look then, beginning with verse number Five And I guess before I even read this, I probably ought to give you a little background on Titus. Titus was one of Paul's close assistants. Titus was involved with taking collections of money from the various churches around the Mediterranean Sea back to Jerusalem to help the poor. Titus later on is considered an apostle as one of Paul's teams. He later uh, went to do ministry in a place called Dalmatia, which today we know of as Yugoslavia. This particular island of Crete where Titus is ministering, this is this is southeast of Greece in the Mediterranean. And it's only about 35 miles wide, 166 miles long. And it's not mentioned in the book of Acts as one of the places that Paul went to. But it's quite evident that if Paul says in verse five, I left you there. Paul had some ministry there. And this is why Titus is appointed to be there. So verse five now, I left you in Crete that you should set in order things that are wanting or lacking and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed you. So the church has Christians in different cities and Paul wants elders in these different cities. He does not put anyone other than Titus in charge of all of the elders. So the elders are accountable to Titus as Titus is accountable to Paul and he gives him some qualifications to look for in people that are going to have these roles as elders who are going to be teaching and ministering the word of God. He says in verse six, if any be blameless. Now when you read that, the first thing that comes to mind is how in the world is anybody going to be qualified for that? Because there's nobody in the church that's perfect. Not talking about perfection. It's talking about somebody that has lived a life that is exemplary so that they have a good witness and testimony within the congregation of believers, as well as outside of the congregation of believers. We're just looking for somebody who, who, who's not a thief, somebody who's not known to be a liar, not somebody who's perfect. But somebody who strives to be a good person and walks with the Lord to the best of their ability and with the light and revelation that they possess. It says the husband of one wife. So we, we can't have polygamy. We, he wasn't going to put up with that in in the church. And, and of course, if, if we're going to get into the whole gender thing, I think that's apparent. OK, the husband of one wife. So we're talking about a guy and a gal yoked together in marriage. Paul had a number of couples who assisted him, who did ministry together, Priscilla and Aquila. In Romans chapter 16, verse seven, it talks about Andronicus and Junius, who he said were Christian before him and were of note among the apostles. This is the only instance where there's any kind of a record of a lady who's given any kind of mention among the apostles. Now, here's how interesting this is. In the early patristic era, all of the church fathers understood the name Junia to be a woman. And in fact, in Julius Caesar's, uh, in his close circle of workers, he had a woman named Junia who was married to one of his assistant, so everybody always knew in the patristic area that that was a woman 's name. but in the medieval times, because the, the the preachers of that time you know the Roman church and then the split from the Roman church to the Greek Orthodox church, so and so. They, they, they couldn't countenance the idea that she could have been a woman. So they, they, they started changing the way it was written in the Greek. So they put an accent towards the end so it had a masculine name. However, there, there's no use in ancient history of that name ever being a man's name. Always a woman's name. That's in Romans sixteen seven. So, as I'm going through this, I still want you to understand that Paul had couples, men and women, that had churches that met in their house and they talked to people about God and they shared the ministry and talked to people and witnessed to people about Jesus Christ. So, back here in verse 6 having faithful children not accused of riot or unruly. Well, that's helpful. You've all heard stories about PKs. We, we don't need to rehearse all the bad stories that we've heard. I, I, I do know one story of a, of a guy who didn't like preacher's kids at all. And the preachers, he, he said, because whenever the preacher and his kids came to visit his home, his mom always invited them to come stay. He said, Mom always fried chicken and said they hardly ever had chicken except when the visiting preacher came. And by the time the preacher and his kids were done, done, there was nothing left but the wings and maybe a neck. And so this one young man was so angry with these preacher kids who would sit there and eat up all that food and have a smile on their faces, they were teasing the other kids because they were getting the first choice. He said he took molasses and poured it in one of the PK's hair and just rubbed it in and then poured in flour. And of course, said his mother liked to kill him. This went on back in like 1922 or 23. But, but, but you can see that if, if, uh, if children in ministry aren't producing good things and are provoking bad things, then it's not helpful for people that are trying to operate and function in leadership because people will say why are you telling me about how I'm living or what I'm doing when you've got those little hellions in your house that's what else Now, if they don't tell them that to their face that is what they're saying at home and that is what they're saying you know amongst themselves in, in private private conversation so verse seven he says now a bishop then must be blameless We learned in verse five, he said, set elders in every city. So now we learn specifically that one of the elders' functions is to be that of a bishop. We have thought because of our modern denominations that a bishop is just someone who has regional control over a bunch of preachers. When in fact, the word bishop just simply means someone who has oversight of a congregation. It's very simply like a pastor. That's all. Now there's nothing wrong with people occupying a position as a bishop in which that is stated. But let's remember the history of our churches. The majority of them do not go back to the book of Acts. And we have a lot of traditions in them that we think go back to the book of Acts, but don't necessarily uh, it's not necessarily the case. The Anglican Church, they, they, they were they pulled out of the Roman Catholic Church because the king of England couldn't get granted a divorce from the pope. Since he was mad, he just decided, I'll start my own church, and he did, and so that's why we have the Anglican church today. The Coptic church goes all the way back to the 4th and the 3rd century, but the Coptic church at one time, like the Maronite church of of Lebanon and parts of India, they at one time had been affiliated with the main church that at one time was in Syria, but they had splits and broke off and wanted to do their own thing. And many of our Protestant denominations, to go back to the Protestant Reformation are connected with one individual and they severed themselves from what was going on in the main church because they wanted something different that they believed was closer to scripture. So when we look at this, then these principles are supposed to apply to everybody. The bishop then must be blameless. That's important. You need a preacher that is not filled with scandal, because if his life or her life is filled with scandal, then I give you my word. They will not be respected. I've said this a thousand times and you hear me say a thousand more times while I'm here. However anointed a man or woman is, they have no more power over people except what they have to influence them. And the main thing they have that gives them the ability to influence them is respect. Somebody could be super anointed of God and and be able to pray for people and wonderful things happen and be very eloquent in the pulpit. But if you have had contact with them or heard something about them that has caused you to lose respect for them, you won't receive from them. You just won't listen to them. You turn them out, tune them out. You turn the, the channel when they come on. It doesn't matter how many other people tell you how wonderful they are. You just won't listen to them at all. So when we come back to verse seven, then. That bishop should be a steward of God, understanding that his role in ministry is as a servant of the Lord and everything that's committed to his care belongs to God. A shepherd has sheep that he's supposed to pastor, but the sheep belong to God. They don't belong to the, she- to the bishop, to the pastor. So the, the pastor and the bishop are not supposed to try to fleece the sheep, believing that the wool belongs to them, it belongs to God. And to be a good steward is to be a faithful worker, not self-willed. That's stubborn. I'm going to do what I want, whether you want me to do it or not. Not soon angry. Not given to wine. But let me me back up here on this self-willed one and say something else. One thing you won't find in. The book of Acts and in Paul's epistles are fellowships and churches that are governed and ran by a committee of people who are just businessmen or something like that. It's just not in here. However, that is how modern churches function. So my grandfather was a Baptist preacher for over 80 years. Tiffany come up in a Baptist church that still was full gospel. I came and uh, preached in a lot of Baptist churches. And one thing I do know in Baptist churches, the deacons run the church, run the church. They have all the control. And if you've ever been around Presbyterian fellowships, you know, the main power base. There is not the pastor or the senior ministers, the ruling elders who have all the power and all the control. The reason these things developed like that, and it's just a natural growth or outgrowth of of the founding of churches, you have a church that grows and mushrooms and flourishes, then a preacher dies. So now people are left in a position where they've got to find somebody to come and minister. So you end up having a some kind of committee has to get together and figure out who's going to become the new pastor. So you have people coming to apply and come in to supply resumes. And of course, people are supposed to be praying about who they want to be the pastor. Then somebody comes along, this person stays three years, then they turn around and leave. So what's happening is that the revolving door has a lot of preachers coming and going, coming and going. Whereas the, the, the other people in the church, they're there all the time. So they end up becoming the center of power. That's just I mean, that's natural. It's, 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 it's going to happen because the, the, the folks who are there, they've already had somebody that came and took them north. And then somebody else came and took them south. And somebody else had a vision, and said this time we headed west. And the other one said, we're going back east this time. Then the other one said, we're not going anywhere. We're just going to spin around in a circle. And so the, the, the elders and the matriarchs and the patriarchs, they said, look, we have already done all the cartwheels and we've done all this stuff you're talking about. We don't want to do it now. And so what does the pastor do? He waits to the middle of the night and calls for the U-Haul. And then he moves off to the next location. Well, the, the whole point is that the power base was established because of the residency of those that are there. It's only natural, folks. That's just the way everything functions in uh, in life. But here in verse seven, because uh, Titus is involved with the initial founding of these churches, he said, you make sure you empower people who are not stubborn, self-willed, not quickly angry. How come you don't want a preacher to be Uh, Very, very, very swift to be mad because you don't want a preacher up in the pulpit fighting you in his sermons and messages. The last thing you want is some uh, meeting to go on privately. And then the preacher gets up and just embarrasses everybody. And do you know that that board member doesn't like you anyway? He said, sister, sister scoundrel, he doesn't even like your dress. See, that's that's the kind of stuff that has happened. I hope it doesn't happen out here, but it certainly has happened. You don't want to minister like Peter Cartwright was on a few occasions who was a great Methodist camp meeting preacher. But Peter Cartwright, he was he was one of these guys that would carry a pistol and, and invite people down to the altar and the power of God would fall. And then at the end of the meeting, if somebody got upset and said something he didn't like, he'd invite them outside the tent. And then he'd go out there and do whatever he needed to do. Then he'd come right back in and start praying for the people again. Well, you probably wouldn't like a pastor like that for too long, I don't think. So not somebody who's swift to anger, not given to wine. This 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 bears a, an extended statement because you, you only have... A few denominations that even really permit all of this. So typically, and I'm saying this because I've known of a lot of closet alcoholic pastors, okay? So whether we're talking about Presbyterian, Lutheran, Episcopalian, usually you'll have some of this going on because. uh, they don't see anything wrong with imbibing in liquors, in strong drinks, spirits. Whereas the, the churches that came out of the 19th century holiness movement, your Nazarenes, your churches of Christ, your uh, Pentecostal churches and things like that, they have a zero tolerance for any kind of liquor. The, the issue then and, and Baptists typically come out of that holiness movement, too. Although I, I, I know when I used to stand in churches and they received members in and then they'd read the Baptist covenant. Then there's the sentence in there. We further endeavor to abstain from the sale and use of liquor. And then we had people in the congregation that own bars. OK, even though we recited that uh, nearly every week. But the point is this. If 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 somebody enjoys a sip And they've got strong appetites for that stuff. Pretty soon a sip is going to be a swallow, a a big swallow. Then it probably might turn into half a cup. Then it may turn into a full cup. Then before you know it, you're you're dealing with uh, somebody who's drinking two or three glasses a day. Then it may turn into a a can of beer, then a six-pack, maybe a 40-ounce. And then it just gets bigger and bigger, and the liquor gets stronger and stronger as the body's acceptance of it builds up. You know, it loses any sense of resistance, or it builds up a greater appetite for it, and and pretty soon we have preachers that are in the pulpit that are inebriated. Now, I'm not going to give any personal examples, but I know a bunch of them, the preachers that show up in the pulpit intoxicated and preach the gospel, and the people in the congregation don't want to say anything to them about it because they said if we tell him what he's doing is wrong, then we all have to stop doing it. Okay. Well, if a, if a person gets up in the pulpit and they're tipsy, somebody ought to go help them out of there as quick as possible. Because more damage is being done by allowing that scene to continue and perpetuate itself week after week. than would be done if you got him out of there and got an elder up there and started reading Bible stories or something like that out of Scripture. Much better that way. So he's, he should not be violent, according to verse seven. Don't want somebody fighting. Not given to filthy lucre. He's not somebody who is trying to chase after money and make a gain of the people. I mean, there are people who who lay awake at night and dream up inventions of how to get people's money out of their pocket. A, a, a preacher has to be wise. It, it's, it's a privilege. It's a blessing. It's an honor to pastor people of wide and varied economic backgrounds. So whether you're dealing with people that are poor or whether you're dealing with people that are wealthy, it takes a whole lot of wisdom to deal with that and not cater to the one and then ignore the other. But some ministers can't do that. They are, they are wrapped up in the esteem and prestige that they're The pulpit possesses the name that their church has. And so they're interested in making sure they spend a significant amount of time with the ones that have the money. Because the ones that have the money are going to back what they're doing. The scripture here says that bishops should not be greedy of the lucre. See, Not be the kind of person chasing after that. So money can't be the objective. Somebody has to believe that God will meet the needs that are there and not be concerned about that. And I've been around a whole lot of people with a lot of money in my life. Lots of people as I as I preached. And it's it, it's a it's amazing. The scripture does say that a man's gift makes room for him. So it, it, it is true. Sometimes somebody give a big gift to a ministry. And then they may end up with access. I don't like that. I don't think that's, that's, a, that's a good way to do things. But when, when we used to, when I used to be in the military and, and was preaching in the Middle East and working for the embassy, you talk about people with power and money, ah, it's of power, money, influence and affluence. Some of the preachers I've been connected with, Brother Swaggart, I've seen them raise millions of dollars in offering on a single night. Millionaires walking down the aisle, dropping in a check, and the people over here are counting the money as it's coming in. Two hundred thousand, four hundred fifty thousand, one million. A lot of people with money. And I think I was telling the folks on Sunday about when Tiff and I first came here, one of the men who was a co founder of the Holiday Inn was in. Jimmy Swaggart's church at that time. And he took a, a great liking to me and, and my ministry and was doing a, a whole lot on the side, uh, helping me, giving me stuff in between my travels and trips. Well, when we got married and we came up here, he came to our wedding. He gave me his card. He said, if you ever need anything, give a give a call. And I'm sure I could have called him on a number of occasions. And I'm sure there were a number of occasions where Tiffany wanted me to call him. But I never did. But I would watch him walk right down there, writing those checks. It'd be 20,000, 50,000, 100,000. See, a preacher cannot be the kind of person who allows himself to be manipulated by monies. And when it happens, it's bad for the church because people will quickly be able to recognize it, even if he doesn't see what is taking place. You've got to treat everybody Everybody the same. Verse 8, a lover of hospitality. Gotta have a big heart. A lover of good men. That's an interesting thing to say. Why would a preacher be a lover of bad men? Well, let me tell you the story from Nehemiah, chapter 13. The priest in Nehemiah's day had become friends with an Ammonite by the name of Tobiah. The Bible says that Ammonites were not supposed to be allowed in the tabernacle, in the holy place. You know what Elisha Elisha did? He not only allowed Tobiah access to to the temple area, he built him an apartment in the temple. Let the Ammonite come there. And you know what room he lived in? He lived in the treasury where the Jewish people were supposed to bring their tithes and their offerings. So what did the Jewish people do? They stop tithing. They stop giving. And when, whenever people in a church think that leadership is corrupt, they'll withhold their funds. They'll do it every time. I've seen them try to starve out preachers. I've seen folks withhold tithes because they knew a preacher was in adultery. I've seen people withhold tithes because they thought the money was being abused. You said, well, what are you supposed to do? I guess that's all you can do. See, if, if nobody wants to deal with the issue of corruption and is afraid to ask someone to step down, then I guess the only res- resort left is to hold on to your finances. I'd rather do that than give mine to somebody who's stealing and abusing it, not using it for the kingdom of God. The preacher should be a lover of good men, not a lover of wicked men. See? Giving them access. Sober, see? not allowing his mind to. His rationale to be governed by other things, just, see, I'm about righteous, holy, self-explanatory, temperate. This person should be modest. In the way that they conduct themselves. And then verse nine, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine, both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. The number one way to change people's lives in the church is by the faithful proclamation of God's word. It's Not by arguing with people. It's not by trying to twist people's arm about this or that. Present the facts, present the truth, and then allow the truth to set people free. Anytime you come out here on a Tuesday evening or on a Sunday evening or wherever you're in church on a Sunday or whatever day of the week, when you voluntarily go to that place, you sit down in that pew or that chair. You are allowing that word to judge you. You are voluntarily allowing that preacher to preach a word that's going to judge your actions. If your actions are good, then you're going to be found innocent, you're going to be acquitted. You're going to feel good about what's being taught. If you're guilty, you're going to be convicted by the Holy Spirit. And the whole time the teaching is going forward, you're going to be wishing you were somewhere else. That's what happens. The Spirit of God works in our life to either accuse us or to excuse us. So it's a matter of what we're going to allow the word of God to do in our life and if you choose to hold your opinion that you've held for decades or for 2 days if you choose to to continue to retain that opinion even after truth has come to you you've allowed that opinion to become your god because your life is ordered and regulated by what you think and believe mhm yeah holding the holding fast the faithful word so a preacher should be adequately taught God's word so that they can ad- adequately teach God's word. That's why the word says not a novice. That's being lifted up, fall into the pride and condemnation of the devil. Somebody who just became a Christian, it's a bad thing to put them in a position as a shepherd. Reminds me of one preacher. Uh, Brother Brankle tells a story of how he became a pastor when he was 15 years of age. said so he had no business pastoring the church. But here he was out in the country, and here were some people having marital problems, and here he was, 15, in the church, still living at home. And so the couple came to him, and, and they were needing some marital counseling. and he asked them what the problem was, and they were talking about everything that was going on, and he, he just told the husband, he said, look, the only way you're going to fix this, you, you're going to need to take Listerine. That's a 15-year-old, that's all he knew to tell him. Okay? So, if, if you have a kid leading it, then a kid's going to give you kiddish insight. You understand? This is why the scripture is very plain here. Somebody who has been taught God's word needs to be able to teach God's word. And then, with sound doctrine, they'll convince the gainsayers. Now, I'm, I'm teachable when it comes to God's word, and I'm interested in. And what people uh, believe, and if people have questions, I don't mind people asking questions. I'll try to answer them. If I don't know, I just say I don't have the answers. And I certainly believe that if anything is taught publicly from the pulpit, then the people listening have the right to ask a question about it. See That's just the way it is. And if you find somebody who gets upset because you're asking a question about something they taught publicly, that's a character flaw in that preacher. See? Don't say anything publicly that you don't want people to ask questions about. However, I don't preach anything that I don't believe is a strong conviction of my life. If I didn't believe it, I wouldn't say it. Yeah, it's, it, it's a principle that I'm convinced of. But if if I learn that something is incorrect, then I, I change it. Just like when I was a teenager, I grew up in a, a church that, that taught that sanctification was a second blessing. So like the Wesleyan, the traditional Wesleyan doctrine of sanctification is that even though you're now a Christian, you still need another blessing that'll make you holy. It'll help you live holy. So the majority of Pentecostal denominations that came out of the 19th century, they held to some kind of Wesleyan doctrine of sanctification. So that'd be your church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee, that'd have been Church of God in Christ in which I was raised. That would be a United Church of God, United Pentecostal Church, all these different kinds of churches. But, but one day I was reading in, in Corinthians as a teenager and I saw the scripture when it says Christ has been made our sanctification. Christ has been made our sanctification. Then I realized I did not have to be in the altar praying, asking God to give me some special blessing or shaking that's going to make me holy. I realized instantly That I'm made holy because of my relationship with God and that sanctification is nothing more than growth in grace and in knowledge. The more I increase what I know, the more I change how I live. And that's how God sets me apart from one thing to set me apart unto something else. He sets me apart from this. Then in the next stage, he sets me apart from that. So this is what a preacher is able to help people to see through the teaching of the word of God. And this is what keeps us from going from one doctrine to the next. See? Sound doctrine. Let me give you some bad doctrine. Um, years ago, there was a traveling preacher. Who was telling everybody that in her meetings, God was sending feathers from heaven. Feathers. okay. I don't know if they were bird feathers or feathers out of a pillow, but feathers were appearing on the sanctuary floor. There was a, a preacher named Lester Summerall who doubted all of this. So Lester Summerall told Willie George in Tulsa, Oklahoma, get your camera crew and go to the meeting where the lady is. So they went to the meeting and there were thousands of people there and she's doing her little thing. She's floating around and she's talking about feathers from heaven and all of that. Well, Willie George and them had the camera crew. And of course, I don't care how conniving and deceitful you are. You're not going to move fast enough to, to move beyond those clicks of that camera lens. And so they, they got her on tape. She was back there. She had them feathers in that big sleeve she had. And she's dropping them behind the piano as she was walking and in between the pews as she was laying hands on people. But there were a lot of people taken in by that, see? A lot of people taken in by that. That's not to mention the stories I've heard of all the gold dust falling in the sanctuaries and different churches. And I thought if anybody had sense, they'd gather all of that up and weigh it and make some money off of it. But well, we know it's not gold dust, but it's, it's people wanting to make it seem like they're a much more spiritual than they are. I had somebody one time mail me in an envelope a, um, a packet that had these crystals in it. And they said, "Now, if you're sick, you take these crystals and you run you some bath water and you drop these crystals in there. And it's going to produce this wonderful aroma. And as you're sitting there bathing in that water, that sweet aroma that we've prayed over all of us and our staff, that's going to be like a healing ointment and it's going to make you whole. Folks, I'm telling you that's borderline witchcraft. You hear me? That's borderline witchcraft. There, That kind of a thing is not good at all. And so these kinds of things I've heard over and over and over again. In that church, there has to be a discernment between what is of the world, the flesh, or the carnal mind, and the devil. See? And sometimes people just lay around dreaming up ways to, to cause you to believe that they're spiritual and that they will, uh, you'll get a good return off of your donation towards them. Paul said to Titus, if you're going to be on that island and that thing is going to stand, you've got to convince them by sound doctrine. Not by shenanigans, but by sound doctrine, and good things will happen. And so we'll, we'll stop right here uh, for now, but you can see in the, the succeeding verses there, it talks about a lot of different kinds of folks that need to be dealt with, whose mouths need to be closed, because there are a lot of fables and teachings out there that will lead... To deception. Folks, the church needs to be a place where God's word is proclaimed. Yeah. If if all we were going to do in the church is get up in the pulpit and read somebody else's book and not take the time to read this scripture. Then I don't think that'd be good for you. But over in Ohio, where I'm from, there's a little town where Norman Vincent Peale was from. And his name is very popular in that town. They got streets and all kind of stuff that is named after him. He was really into this whole positive thinking thing, you know. You are what you think and all of that. And, and let's not forget there's a verse in the Bible that says, as a man thinketh in his heart so is he. So typically people start with a principle of truth, build upon it and then go crazy. And, and his his whole belief, which is so odd and strange to me, uh, you, if, you, if you ever saw him on television, as I did when I was a kid, he was just a strange guy because there was never any gospel, no teaching of the Bible, a lot of stories about Jesus, a few parables here and there. Well, that filtered down uh, through a lot of different, um, I don't want to say different channels, and his main disciple probably became Robert Shuler you ever watched him on television, you know Mr. Shuler. He'd bring people up and he'd interview people. They'd give a good testimony, inspirational testimony, which is always nice and, and good. However, if you ever listened in on that message, you didn't get any gospel, any gospel at all. You found motivational talk, but not any gospel. And the reason for that is because long ago when he left Iowa, where he knew the gospel and made his way out there to California, he realized then that... The main way to grab a crowd and hold that crowd, you've got to entertain that crowd. And if you're going to entertain people, you cannot make room for the gospel. You have to be willing to sacrifice something in order to have a crowd of people sometimes. That's not to say everything that's big is corrupt. That's just simply to say you've got to pay attention to what you hear coming out of a preacher's mouth when they're dealing with this book. Yeah, let's pray. Father, thank you that we could look into the scripture this evening, and even as we uh, talked about this and uh, ministered about the qualifications of uh, these leaders, it's not our desire, God, to be uh, overly judgmental, but it is our desire to present the truth and to distinguish between what you placed in this book and what we very often see right now. So we pray for one another that, Lord, you'd keep each one of us, that we wouldn't fall and yield to these same kinds of things in temptation, but that our eyes and ears would be open to behold and to recognize the truth as it is declared in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, amen, amen.